Hello, hello, am I on? Morning, hello, good to see you. I can see you now, I'm stood up here looking this way. I'm just, uh, just waffling for a moment there so we can make sure we've got some sound all right. Um, I'm going to read for us from Acts chapter 5. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Terry might have been reading ahead this week. Uh, he's maybe already pointed us at where we're starting. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll get into it, okay? So from verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin in order that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, 
All his followers were dis- dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the day, days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave the men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. At the center of this passage, we've got Peter and the other apostles laying out the gospel to the synagogue leadership, to all of them that were gathered there, all those leaders of Israel, everyone else who was around listening, and he's laying out the truth of the gospel. The God of our ancestors, he's saying to them, that's your God. That's the God we're worshipping. It's him that has raised Jesus from the dead. It was him who did it. Jesus was raised from the dead by God. He then has a full-on dig at them. It was you who killed him, hanging him on a tree. Uh, uh, We've heard uh, Neil's illustration there, just wonderfully helping us. Uh, to imagine uh, what, that, what, that, what was going on in, in that moment uh, and helping us understand what was happening there as Jesus was cursed for us. And God exalted him then to his own right hand as prince and saviour. He might, he might bring Israel, so, so he's talking to the, the Jews that are there. Uh, there's Jews from every nation, but it's primarily Jews there. There's some that have gathered in from the towns around. Uh, we know they're from all over because at Pentecost they were there. Uh, um, all, all being filled with the Spirit as well. So we know there's lots of people around, but we are in Jerusalem. And so he's saying, uh, he's focusing on Israel at this point. Uh, but he's saying he wants to bring Israel to repentance. God brings people to repentance. That is God's work. He brings us to repentance. Why does he do that? Because he wants to forgive sins. That's what he's all about, forgiving sins. He can only do that if he's brought them to repentance. But God is here to forgive sins. That's his mission in life. That's what he wants to do. He wants people to know his forgiveness. God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him, so as to bring people to repentance so that he can forgive their sins. These guys in the, in the, in the, in the, in the colonnade there, proclaiming it, Jesus as saviour. They, they established that this is all God's initiative. It's his work. He started it. He has authority over death. He is in charge of life and of death. His purpose is to bring people to repentance so that he can forgive their sins. Have I made that point? He has authority to do that. As well as having demonstrated his authority over life and death in raising Jesus, he demonstrates his authority over time and space, uh, he, he, over created things, over prison doors, over guards' eyes. He, he, he's, he's setting people free. Fears are being demolished. Hearts and minds are being transformed as people join them. He rules and he reigns. And we see what the apostles' response to God's work that's going on here is 
in verse 29, where they say, we must obey God. Now, the reason they say this isn't because they think obedience to God is going to save them. No, it's because they've grasped that Jesus is their saviour. He's already saved them. Their repentance and God forgiveness has made them righteous. This is the good news, people. They've grasped that God's in charge, that he has all authority. So they're compelled to respond with obedience. It's the only thing that makes sense now. Why would they obey the rulers and the guards that put them in prison rather than the Lord who sent an angel, broke them out of prison, unlocked the doors, got them out, the doors were still locked afterwards. I, you can imagine how, what sequence that might have looked like. Um, if you're drawing pictures, uh, you might want to try and work out how you draw prison doors that were closed with people in it and then open, and then the people were out, and then they were closed again, and the guards were there, and they didn't know what was going on. Uh, good luck drawing that. Um, but where else are they going to put their hope? They're going to put their hope in the one who has all authority. That's our God. That's who we hope in. So, let's have a look at some of the things that the apostles and the early disciples experience as we look at this passage here. In verse 17 and 18, we see that one of the things they experience, well, two of the things really connected, is imprisonment and injustice. They're victims of jealousy. They're locked up without reason, unreasonably, unfairly. They experience this great injustice and they are physically restrained in prison. Another thing they experience uh, at the end, towards the end of the story, in verse 40, they experience flogging and censorship. They were told not to speak in the name of Jesus and they endured a solid beating. This is persecution. This is because of what they said they believed. Now, the world might think, oh, well, that was a, a different time. Uh, we've moved on from those times. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be civilized, aren't we? And, and maybe people in the world think that because we're, we're now full of human wisdom and we've got democracy and we've got science and material wealth, we've got political will, we've got unifying organizations, we've got tolerance. Uh, this is a prevailing worldview that, that the problems of the world are going to be solved by people coming together using their ingenuity and effort. But for all, all this so-called process, we look around the world and, and, and we just continue to see that the place is full of intolerance. It's still full of war. Humans haven't solved it. In the UK today, uh, in, in trying to maybe relate to, to some of what they were experiencing then, um, I don't know what you have experienced and whether you would call it persecution or not. Uh, maybe, uh, like me, you face some misunderstanding. You've been maybe ostracized, felt on the outside in some way. Maybe you've been openly mocked for what you believe and what you've said that you believe. Uh, maybe you feel the pressure of censorship, whether that's socially, uh, I think legally, we still have freedom of speech in this country. 
socially, that's under pressure. Um, the trajectory isn't great. The, the shoots of persecution are maybe there. But elsewhere in the world, our brothers and sisters, about 360 million of them, do face a very real possibility of the kinds of persecution that the apostles were facing in this story. Injustice, imprisonment, physical beatings, and censoring. In looking at this uh, in, in the recent weeks, I, I was looking again at Open Doors, the, the Christian organization that, that focuses on strengthening Christians in countries where they face persecution. Uh, they hold a, they maintain a, a world watch list of the top 50 countries where, where Christians face the greatest threats. Uh, I've got a few highlights for you, if we can call them highlights. Perhaps lowlights would be better. Uh, Afghanistan is the, the first on the list. If you're discovered uh, there as a Christian, the most probable outcome is death. Uh, Qatar, I went for Qatar because of the World Cup coming up. I thought it'd be interesting to see what happens there. There's a kind of two-tier system in, in Qatar. Uh, the indigenous population aren't allowed to be Christians. Uh, the expat community that work and live amongst them are allowed to worship in compounds in registered designated buildings. Uh, and they used to be not enough of those, so they used to be allowed to meet in their homes as well um, in small groups. But uh, because of COVID, all meetings were stopped for everybody. Uh, after COVID, they reintroduced meeting in their registered compound buildings, but they've not allowed the population, the expat, even the expat community to meet together in their houses uh, for the purpose of Christian worship. Um, maybe bear that in mind when you're, when you're watching the World Cup, if you watch it. India. India is now in the top 10. Maybe many of you might have a connection with India or might have lived there. It's now in the top 10 countries in the world where our brothers and sisters might experience serious persecution. I could tell you about Yid Ali, a carpenter who lives in Bangladesh. His, he, he, uh, uh, his business, his livelihood was carpentry, making furniture. And he had a, a small warehouse with all his tools and some completed furniture and some raw materials. And because he's a Christian, others in the town came one night, stole his tools, smashed his furniture, ruined his raw materials, stole his livelihood. This is in the world today. There are brothers and sisters. So just as persecution was part of what the apostles were facing here, it remains part of what the church worldwide faces today. Now, I want to just try and help you a bit because I appreciate that might have felt a little bit heavy and a lot to process. I, I, think, I think it's really tempting, isn't it, to compare our situations and feel, feel guilty. Uh, we're all quite good at feeling guilty, aren't we? in all sorts of different ways. Maybe I've made you feel a bit guilty. I'm sorry, that wasn't my intention. Uh, I was helped by thinking, what does this mean for the church rather than what does this mean for me? Maybe you can just forget about what it means for you and think, what does this mean for the church? What is God doing? You can still think of yourself as a vital part of that worldwide church, but maybe it avoids just going down a cul-de-sac of, of of guilt for things that God hasn't asked us to feel guilty about. 
It's maybe also an opportunity to, to ask the what if question. What if one day I experience very real persecution for being a Christian? Am I going to be surprised by that? Um, what am I going to think in that moment? Will I assume that God's lost control or doesn't love me anymore? Or will I, you know, will I, will I run or will I stand? Will I find myself forearmed by his word in Acts 5? Let's look at some other things that they experience. These aren't hypothetical. There are many ways in which the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of the apostles here. Uh, and we can ask similar sort of questions. What, what, what encouragement would I receive or what I experience uh, as I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient? That comes from verse uh, 32. Uh, just a uh, segue into that for a moment there. We are, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Um, Dan and I were talking about this in the week, sort of intrigued by that uh, connection between being filled with the Spirit and obedience. At first you think, oh, is, it a, uh, uh, is, that, is that a condition that's put on? If you're obedient, then I might fill you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, have you been obedient enough? Now, uh, I'm going to suggest it's not that. I'm also going to suggest we don't build a full theology on the Holy Spirit and obedience on half a verse, because the Bible has a lot to say about both of those. But there certainly seems to be some sort of connection, uh, and, and, and I don't know, maybe it's a virtuous circle. Uh, this is just me maybe just speculating a little bit, but uh, bear with me. Um, maybe, maybe obedience is a, a fruit of being filled with the Spirit. Uh, maybe obedience demonstrates a kind of readiness to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Anyway, I, that was just a segue. Back, back, to, back to the action here. Um, and what do we see that the apostles experienced? In verse 12, we see signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are happening amongst the people. Oof, exciting stuff. We see people joining them with a healthy fear of God, just in verses 13 and 14 there. Again, a great couple of sentences here. No, no one else dared join them. Nevertheless, more and more women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I guess that worked somehow. Uh, I'm going to take it from that, that people were joining them, but that they were doing it with a, a suitable amount of fear and trepidation uh, whilst being helped into the kingdom. We see there again the, the repentance and forgiveness for sins that must have been part of that. Just uh, skipping through verse 16. Um, as Terry mentioned, the sick being healed. Very straightforward here, isn't it? All of them. And then uh, uh, those with uh, those impure spirits going, leaving. They have to leave. And God's holiness is there. Impure spirits get very uncomfortable. We'll be leaving of impure spirits as the holiness of God is at work amongst the people of God. We see angels appearing. We see rescue being set free, prison doors opening. We see this amazing 
uh, uh, this amazing part of the story, just where it's, it's, it's written so short, but, it, but it's so clear that, that it was just impossible, but it happened. <laughs> it doesn't make sense in time and space, but it happened. It was great to hear uh, a couple of stories last week, I think, uh, um, that were uh, of, of brothers and sisters in, in other countries that were surprisingly uh, let out of prison unexpectedly when they'd been put in there as an act of persecution. Maybe there's other ways in which people were being set free. It's great, thank God's at work. People get set free in all sorts of ways so that they can live for him. Here's another intriguing one. I like this one in verse 21. It says, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. I don't know, I see in there a sort of immediacy to their obedience. Bearing in mind that they'd been in prison half the night. Uh, They didn't say, well, let me just go home, get a couple of nights good sleep, get my strength up, have a good meal, then maybe we'll go. No, at daybreak, I don't know how many people were at the temple waiting to hear them when they got there at daybreak, but they were there at daybreak, ready to uh, obey what the uh, angel had instructed. Uh, as you know, I love a bit of obedience. Um, verse 25. I just see boldness written there. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Uh, uh, They know that they're going to get caught up with, don't they? They know that they're standing in the temple. They know that they've been told not to do it. They know that the Sanhedrin think that they're in prison. They know that they're going to get found out, but they're not hiding away. They're facing it full on. Such boldness. Holy Spirit at work in them. Also, I think, uh, let me see, where is it? In the, uh, where, where, in verse 27, where, where the apostles are brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Um, you can imagine them on the way in there thinking, oh, I wonder what we're going to say. And I can also imagine them thinking, didn't Jesus say something about this to us. And I can imagine them remembering Luke 12. Although they might not have thought of it as Luke 12, they might have just literally remembered the words of Jesus that they heard for themselves. In Luke 12, verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Wow, how encouraging must that have been for them in that moment. Don't worry, Jesus has spoken to us about this. We don't need to worry. When we get there, he'll be with us. He'll give us what to say. Full of his word. It would have come, the right thing would have come to mind in that moment. Uh, And we assume that what they said there was the right thing. They proclaimed Jesus as king. They knew what to say. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in control. He has the authority in this situation. One more before I just move on, which is uh, they experienced the help of a Pharisee. Uh, Maybe a little bit unexpected that. 
Maybe it's God's common grace there, using someone who maybe wasn't fully behind them or, or, or sort of definitely wanting uh, this effect, but, but effectively saving their lives. Clearly, couldn't have been the day that God had ordained for their death. He still had more for them to do. What did Gamaliel believe? I, I don't know. He was God-fearing, wasn't he? He was a studier of the law. Um, I can, I, we could infer maybe that, that he's open to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah without perhaps yet being fully convinced. I don't know, maybe. God's law that, that he would have been studying and seeking to follow, you know, he, he perhaps would have taken very seriously the command, uh, do not murder. Uh, maybe he'd have remembered from the Torah where it says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Maybe this stuff had impacted him and he was not wanting to see more killing. I don't know what his motive was, but God used him for his purposes and to allow the apostles to live through this so they could continue the work that he had for them. It's good to know that God's at work, even when we're not sure what he's doing. I mentioned Open Doors earlier, uh, the, the ministry that grew out of the life of a guy called, known as Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a Dutchman. He was promoted to glory just last month, uh, an old man full of years with a fascinating story. He, uh, 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 as, a, as, a, as a boy, he was just about to go to secondary school and the Second World War broke out and school was cancelled uh, for all of it. Um, I don't know if you're at secondary school and what you think about that. Uh, Maybe that excites you, that idea. Maybe, that were, maybe you would wonder what you would do. He, uh, he joined the army. He was doing quite well in the army. He was, had commando training, but he got shot in the ankle and medically discharged. So having not done any school, now his career was a bit over as well. But while he was recovering, he read the Bible and it changed the whole direction of his life. He went on to develop a passion for supporting Christians in countries where they're being persecuted. You can read the story if you like his, uh, his book, God's Smuggler, is a bestseller. It's in 35 languages. There's a version for younger readers. Put it on your Christmas list. I recommend it to you. It's a while since I read it, but, uh, but it's, a, it's a, a, an exciting story. Here's a taster. He became a Bible smuggler. And uh, his technique was largely to put Bibles in a suitcase pray that the border guards wouldn't see and cross the border into countries where he wasn't allowed to. Um, one night in 1981, in one night he organised the taking in of a million Bibles to China. There's some great stories there. It's exciting stuff. I recommend it to you. Persecution continues, as it did then, to provide an opportunity for God to do the miraculous. Persecution provides an opportunity for God to do the miraculous. So if we see persecution heading our way, maybe we should start preparing ourselves for miraculous provision and breakthrough and breakout. And stay on the front foot. If we sense maybe God speaking to us about being really on the front foot, like Brother Andrew, and, and going on adventure to a country where Christians are at risk of persecution... 
and you want to go there and strengthen them in some way, then come and talk to us about it. We'd be up for helping you explore it. I maybe even have a contact that I could put you in touch with. So it won't be for everybody, but it might be for somebody. Earlier I talked about the apostles responding, uh, which we see in, the, in verse 30 there. Uh, we must obey God. This desire to obey God is their response. Uh, if we look at the full verse, it says, we must obey God rather than human beings. Which brings up the kind of question of, well, it brings up quite a lot of questions, I think. When do we, when do we obey human authorities and when don't we? Um, what if they overlap? What if they don't overlap? God has established the principle of human government. We could go to Romans 13 and, and look at the beginning of that, where Paul lays very clearly out the case for our default to be to obey the law of the land. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. And he goes on. Now, I might have picked a slightly challenging week to champion our duty to respect government. But I'm going to. Good government is intended for blessing, for order in society. Anarchy is not the alternative that anybody wants. Many laws, it's not a problem to obey, is it? Many laws are, are, are entirely overlapping with God's. The government says don't murder. God says don't murder. Don't murder. There's lots of common ground. I'm going to quote Warren Wiersbe, the uh, US theologian and commentator. The principle of government was established by God, and so we would generally comply for conscience sake, for love's sake, and for Jesus' sake. A Christian citizen ought to be the best citizen. Christians may not always agree on politics, or parties, but we can all agree on our attitude towards human government, which should be as our attitude to all people, made in God's image. Love them, respect them, pray for them, be kind to them, pay our taxes to them. In, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul urges us, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not an end in itself. It's with the gospel in mind. God will grow his church during times of peace and of persecution. But he does say to pray for those in authority. I don't know, maybe we'll do that tonight as we gather. I think it could be a good week to be praying for the government of this country. But also, there are exceptions to obeying authorities. I hope I'm not getting onto too dodgy ground. But we see it in the apostles here, don't we? They're, they're blatantly, overtly and openly disobeying the authorities that were in charge of them at the time. I'm going to quote from John Stott. Uh, 
I thought that might be more helpful than uh, me just putting my view across. Uh, uh, he's thought about this deeply, I'm sure, and well articulates the principle, I think. It, it certainly uh, helped me as I read it. If the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or to forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. Again, for conscience' sake, for love's sake, and for Jesus' sake. Now, I know that you will be encountering other kinds of authorities all the time. At your school, at your work, maybe company statements about values and behaviours. Tricky ground. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to know which approach to take, whether to dodge it, avoid the unnecessarily com unnecessary conflict, whether to, to hit it head on, whether to uh, try and come at it from the side, whether to walk away, whether to just disobey and see what happens. Maybe there's different approaches in different moments. They're difficult decisions to navigate. So my encouragement is not only to pray individually, but let's pray together for wisdom, for courage, for faith, as we face these kind of dilemmas. Of course, there may be moments where you do need to make a stand and you will face consequences in this life. That's what we see the apostles ex experiencing here as they prioritize obedience to the higher, to the highest authority. They were actually flogged. But in verse 41, somehow they go away rejoicing, rejoicing through suffering, not in spite of suffering, but because of the reason they're suffering. This isn't hypothetical. They appear to be experiencing a kind of level of freedom that allows them to say, like the psalmist, uh, I was going to quote from Psalm 56, but Rachel also covered it in Psalm 118, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? Back in Luke 12, <laughs> uh, earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Goes on to fearing God. God of our ancestors, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince, as saviour, that he might bring Israel, that he might bring us to repentance and to forgiveness of sins. I'm going to finish where this passage finishes in verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. God will save the lost. God will build his church. 
We can draw a line from the, from the disciples here, living out the gospel, spreading the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, doing all he said, all the way through to the current day, to the two billion or so Christians that there are in the world today, by a generation after generation after generation that faithfully carried and spread the gospel. It's our turn to be carriers of Christ, to get involved with God's mission, to see his sons and daughters brought to repentance and receiving forgiveness for their sins. Let's be, let's be overflowing with faith and grace, ready on the front foot as we head into this week, in our homes, our factories, our offices, places of community, wherever he may send us this week or beyond. Let's be overflowing with faith and grace, ready on the front foot for all we might face now and in the future, confident in our God.